This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Today we're kicking off a brand new series here at Courageous Church called Worship. Over the next few weeks, we're going to come together to talk about why worship is the single most important activity in the life of a believer and how it dynamically shapes us and defines who we become in Christ Jesus. As courageous followers of Jesus, we're going to look at different ways that we worship. We're going to talk about the power of praise and what that is, and then we'll discuss the priority of worship as it pertains to spiritual warfare and the battle that we're engaged in right now. To begin, I want to lead with a very emphatic statement. Are you ready for it? Here it is. Everybody worships. Did you catch that? Everybody worships. The real question is, what or whom do we worship? To start with some basic terms, worship can be simply defined as the giving of worth to something. It's assigning it a special and dominant place in our hearts based on how we value that particular thing. And we see the evidence of this and what we give our lives to. For some of us, we worship success, so we spend the majority of our lives trying to make a ton of money and climb the corporate ladder. Because we value what success is or represents, we end up giving it our full attention and focus and love. For some of us, we worship sex, so we spend the majority of our time trying to engage in physical pleasure by way of hooking up with other people. And because we value what sex is or represents in our lives, we end up giving it our full attention, focus, and love. For some of us, we worship power, so we spend the majority of our lives trying to attain and wield power over other people and things. Because we value what power is and does for us, we give it our full attention, focus, and love. Do you see a pattern here? Okay. The truth is we can worship all sorts of things. And not only can we worship things, we can also worship people. And we see this all throughout our culture today. In our culture today, we very commonly esteem celebrities and influencers and rock stars and sports figures. We put them on the covers of our magazines and pay them ungodly amounts of money to entertain us and to make us feel a certain kind of way. And then we follow them on Facebook and Instagram religiously because we're fascinated with who they are and obsessed with what they do. And in this way, we essentially worship them. We give them our heart's affection and devotion because, once again, everybody worships. The real question is, what or whom? In the scriptures and in Genesis chapter 1, we see that God created human beings in his image and likeness and gave them the ability to be fruitful and to multiply. And he gave them the ability to have dominion over the earth and every living thing. In this way, human beings were made to express their design and purpose by reflecting God's glory and heart for the world he created. And it was good. But then humans rebelled against God and his good created order and began to worship other things and other people rather than God. They began to turn their hearts from God toward what the Bible calls idols. An idol simply defined is a man-made object or thing intended for worship. 
In the scriptures, an idol typically involves the image and likeness of a lesser god or a foreign deity. It was usually constructed from wood or stone, but in some instances, bronze or even gold. And it was intended to portray or represent the value of that person or thing. Are you tracking with me? Okay. Well, we know that the serpent came to deceive Adam and Eve in the garden by turning their heart's affections away from God and toward the knowledge and pursuit of something else. And the truth is, every one of us has done the same exact thing. Every one of us, whether by design or by default, has given our hearts away to something or someone. We have all essentially traded the glory of God for the glory of something else. And in giving our worship to man-made idols and things and in giving our hearts away to other people, we've all worshiped at the wrong altar. Paul in Romans chapter 1, verses 20 through 25 says this about it. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. According to the scriptures here, every one of us is without excuse for not knowing God. The word to know here implies an intimate knowledge of someone or something. And we see this revealed in and through the act of creation itself. In other words, creation itself testifies to God's glory and worth and power and divine nature. And it's so abundantly clear in the world around us that none of us are ever truly without excuse. Paul continues in verse 21. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. Once again, Paul's saying here that in our desire to become wise, we actually become the fool. And instead of giving our hearts to the glorious, ever-living God, we end up giving them away to idols and other things made to look like the things God himself made, which is the great irony, isn't it? We end up creating cheap substitutes and counterfeits for the glorious things that God has made, and then we worship those things instead of God himself. Paul continues again in verse 24. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Inevitably, into our idol-making efforts, God essentially says, okay, your will be done. You want it your way? Go for it, and let's see how that works out for you. It says here that as a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies, and they traded the truth about God for a lie. In doing so, they gave their worship to things created rather than to the creator himself. Sadly, in giving our hearts away, we end up accepting and believing what the Bible here calls a lie. And what is that lie exactly? Well, it's the same lie that's always been. It's the lie that has come at us from the beginning in the mouths of cunning serpents and snakes. 
It's this. Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? In other words, is God really to be trusted? And if there's a chance that he isn't, is he really worthy of your worship and affection and praise? You see, it's from this place that we've all seen how people spiral out of control when they believe and accept this lie. Because believing this lie not only empowers the liar in your life, it makes you its slave. For many of us, that was our story. And that's how we once believed as well. We were all caught up in the many lies spoken to us about God and ourselves. And what's worse is, we actually believe them. But God, in his infinite grace and mercy, he came to seek and save that which was lost. He came to us in and through the life of his obedient son, Jesus, to liberate the captives and to set us free by way of the truth, which is this. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Along with Jesus and Paul here in Romans 1, it's our firm belief that God is most worthy of our praise and worship. Not because he's in need of it, but because he's most worthy of it. Meaning we believe that God is most worthy of our worship simply because of who he is and because of what he's done. It's against this backdrop that I want to talk to us today about why we believe that and why it's good for us to worship him alone. And then I want to look at how we can do that practically. The title of this message is The Heartbeat of Worship. When we talk about the heart, what we're talking about is the core of who you are and how you express your life upon the earth. We're talking about your soul, the essence of how God created you and designed you to live. As followers of Jesus, we don't live to follow Jesus simply because we think it's just a great idea. We live to follow Jesus because he's won our hearts. He's changed something in here. And in captivating and changing our hearts, we've come to see the world right side up as God intended it from the start. We've also come to distinguish all the truth from all the lies. And in doing so, our hearts have become awakened to the true God songs and God colors of the world. We're no longer content with cheap substitutes and counterfeits because we've tasted and seen that the Lord is in fact very, very good. Additionally, it's no longer us who live, but it's actually now Christ who lives in us. It's his spirit coming and taking up residence within us that now compels us to worship him in the spirit and in truth. You see, before Jesus, all of us like sheep have gone our own way. And in going our own way, we lived empty and meaningless lives, lives that are spent on things that have not produced any life, but rather more death. Anybody feel me on that? Jesus said, I have come to give life and life more abundantly. It's through worship that we believe as a church and as the people of God that our lives actually find their true meaning and potential and purpose in him. It's for this reason that our number one core value as a church is to live a courageous life devoted to Jesus. When we talk about devotion, we're really talking about worship. When we say we want to be courageous in our devotion to Jesus, what we're really saying is that we want to be courageous worshipers of Jesus. So how do we do that? That's really what we're after today. Well, as I said above, I believe true worship starts in the heart of every person. And in these next few moments that we have together, I want to illuminate some practical ways that we can worship Jesus 
with our hearts. Are you with me today? Okay, if you are, give me an amen. Shout me down in the comment section. Number one, we worship Jesus by giving him our time. We believe that the best way to express your heart to Jesus is by actually spending time with Jesus. So what does that mean? How do we do that practically? To frame this for us, I want to turn our attention to a rather famous story within the scriptures. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. I'll be reading from the NIV, and it says this. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about so many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, if you've been around the church a while, chances are you've probably heard a pastor or a worship leader like myself tell this story, but I believe it's still one of the most profound examples of why we worship Jesus, because he's the most important person in our lives. It's also one of the most profound examples of how we worship Jesus by spending time with him. Jesus says to Mary's sister, Martha, Martha, you're so worried. You're so upset about all these things. And in doing so, he's really actually speaking to all of us, isn't he? Jason, Jason, it could be said here instead. Oh, how your heart is so troubled and stressed out about so many things. I wonder if any of you can relate to that today. I'm well, sure you can. Life is stressful. In fact, this whole year has been stressful. This election season has been stressful. The riots and the protests have been stressful. Trying to figure out what to do and next steps is stressful. But Jesus steps right into the middle of our stress. And he says to us like he said to Martha that day, few of these things are actually needed. In other words, all this stuff that you're worried and anxious about and all this stuff that you've been busy trying to plot and figure out and work at is actually not even necessary. Elsewhere in scripture, Jesus would say things like, that's why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? It's Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. He would also say things like, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. That's Matthew 6, verse 34. And how many of you have found that to be true? So why does Jesus say this? Because he knows that all the worrying and working and stressing out over stuff that we do is not going to add a single moment to our lives. In other words, that's not what life is really all about. You know what life is really all about? Well, as it turns out, Mary has discovered it and chosen it, and it's better, and it won't be taken away from her. And here it is. It's spending time with Jesus. It's being with God himself, worshiping and learning at his feet. This is the better thing, according to Jesus. And yet, it seems so counterintuitive to us, doesn't it? Aren't there more pressing things to take care of? Jesus doesn't seem to think so. Aren't there more important matters to attend to? Jesus doesn't seem to think so. And couldn't all this sitting around at Jesus' feet be considered just a waste of time? Well, not according to Jesus. According to Jesus, it's the better thing. 
And so I want to say to us today, worshiping Jesus by spending time with him is the better thing. And it's actually the most important thing that you can do. Like me, you might feel compelled to worry about all kinds of things spinning around you. But if, and hear me on this, if we'd only be willing to stop and spend a little time with Jesus, not only do I believe that God will take care of the things we worry about, but we may actually discover that all that stuff that we are so busy freaking out about is actually not even necessary. You see, spending time with Jesus, as it turns out, it reprioritizes and redefines what is worthy of our time and affection and devotion. It helps us reevaluate our priorities and helps us reestablish what is most important in our lives. In this way, it actually redefines the focus of our worship or what we give our worth to. In the classic 90s movie City Slickers, the cowboy character Curly, played by actor Jack Palance, asks the city character Mitch, played by Billy Crystal, do you know what the secret of life is? As he points his finger to the sky, one thing, just one thing. You stick to that, and the rest don't mean expletive. But what is the one thing, Mitch asks? And Curly responds, pointing at Mitch, that's what you have to find out. For those of you that have seen or even remember this movie, that's exactly what the character Mitch spends the entire movie trying to discover. What is that one thing? In other words, what is the most important thing that I can give my life to, my time to, my attention and affection to? Well, I'm here to tell you today that Jesus is our one thing. Jesus, the curly figure in our story, says to the Mitch figure, Martha, you're so worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Friends, Jesus is our one thing. And worshiping Jesus is not a waste of time, though some might think so. Worshiping Jesus is not even the three or four songs that we sing before the message on Sunday. Worshiping Jesus is so much more than that. It's our whole lifestyle, the way that we spend every waking moment with him. It's what our hearts should beat for, to know God and to be known by him. And it's expressed in how we prioritize what is actually most important to us. We spell this T-I-M-E, time. So number one today, we worship Jesus by giving him our time. Number two today, we worship Jesus by giving him our talents and gifts. In the same way that we view time spent with Jesus as the most important thing that we can do, it's equally important that we view our work as worship as well. You see, Martha's real problem here wasn't her work. It was that she didn't do it or view it as unto the Lord. What do I mean by that? Colossians 3, verse 23-24 says this, Work willingly at whatever you do, as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward, and that the master you are actually serving is Christ. You see, Martha's real problem was that she didn't view her work as for the Lord. Instead, she viewed it as something for the people. In other words, she had the wrong perspective. To Martha, her work was something she had to do, not something she got to do, because she misunderstood who it was actually for. And this revealed the true attitude of her heart. 
As a result, she missed the opportunity to worship Jesus with her work and with her gifts and her talents. Unless we'd be too hard on her, I imagine that Martha was probably a super talented person. Culture and gender roles aside, I, I imagine that she was put in that position because of her talents and abilities. Back then, usually it was the women who did the cooking and all the preparations, but even then, if there were multiple women in the household, there was usually only one that called the shots. Kind of like we see today in restaurants. Typically, there's a head chef and a sous chef, or there's an executive chef and there are many assistants. There's typically one person who calls the shots and the rest who follow orders. Are you tracking with me? Okay. Well, in this story, Martha was the one who called the shots, and she couldn't understand why her sous chef, Mary, was not doing her job, especially given the amount of guests that were in her house that day. Now, I can understand this because in my home, Candace is the executive chef, and I'm given very specific instructions on how to assist, or let's be honest, get out of the way, mostly because I'm gonna make a mess of things and end up eating all the food before it's ready. That's why our daughter, Cora, is actually a much better sous chef than me, because she actually helps, but I digress. The real reason Candace is the executive chef of our home is because she's actually far more talented at cooking than I am. She makes all these epic cakes and pastas and plans out all these incredible meals, and I make macaroni and cheese and top ramen. You know what I'm saying? Anybody feel me out there? All right. But here's what's beautiful about watching Candace cook. She's actually learned how to worship the Lord with her cooking. In other words, she does it not just for the family or because she has to, but she does it as unto Jesus because she's learned that her work can be worship. She's learned that she can offer her gifts and talents to Jesus as worship. Unfortunately, that's where Martha missed it. And that's the point Jesus was trying to illuminate here. All of us can, when we work, find real joy and meaning in the mundane if we see it as an act of worship, if we view it as working for the Lord and not just people. And here's why this should encourage us. Maybe you don't really like your job or even what you get to do for work, but if you change your perspective and see it as an opportunity to worship Jesus, I guarantee you it will change everything for you. So, we worship Jesus by giving him our time and by giving him our talents and gifts. And lastly, number three today, we worship Jesus by giving him our treasure. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I really like the way the New Living Translation says it. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. When the Bible speaks about treasure, it typically means money or wealth or even resources. And all throughout the scriptures, we see ways in which God entrusts to people all of these things. We also see ways in which humans have the gross capacity to abuse and misuse them. But that's not what God wants for us regarding money. He wants us to see it for what it is, a tool and nothing else problem is, is that we tend to worship money or wealth, and rather than being a tool to serve us, we end up serving it. It essentially becomes our master. That's why Jesus would say things like this. 
No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. That's Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Friends, ultimately, money was never meant to be your master. And it's really the love of money that's the root of all evils that we see in the world today. It's people being drawn into worshiping money in the pursuit of it, like we talked about in the beginning of our message, that actually leads people to do all sorts of evil and vile things with it. But money itself, in and of itself, it's not evil. In fact, if we view it the way the Bible does, it can be a great thing to help us bless other people. And the truth is, you can't really bless other people if you don't have any money to begin with. Because you are actually still in slavery. That's what the Bible says here. Friends, I know this about God. He doesn't want you to be enslaved. He wants you to be able to freely worship him and to joyfully serve him with your money and treasure and resources. If you're stingy with your giving, you're going to be stingy with your worship because where your treasure is, your heart will be also. As it turns out, they're inseparable, which means you can't honestly love and worship Jesus and not be a giver. Now, I know that might sound controversial, but these are Jesus' own words here. In fact, Jesus is actually a lot more harsh than I'm being about it. In his parable of the talents, he addresses stinginess full on in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. And he called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. He then left on his trip. The servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earned five more. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. Verse 24. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money back. But the master replied, You wicked and lazy servant. If you knew that I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least then I could have gotten some interest on it. Verse 28. Then he ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one with the 10 bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this useless servant into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, this is a really strong story that Jesus tells here. And why is Jesus so emphatic about it? Because our worship is always connected to our treasure. Did you catch that? It reveals the true posture of our heart toward God himself. So is this money I have truly mine? Or does it belong to God? Am I worshiping Jesus with my giving or being stingy about it? Do I honor God in and through the way that I give? Or do I bury my money and waste it and hide it in fear? These are the questions that God wants us to wrestle with in our worship. It's why we all always point out that our giving is an act of worship because that's the way God views it. As a church, we don't ever want anyone to give under compulsion, but to do so freely and with a cheerful and generous heart because 
as it turns out, God is interested in cheerful and joyful worship. He's not blessed by you meeting a demand or parting with your treasure out of obligation. No, he's blessed by you doing it out of a heart of gratitude and thanks because you know that he's giving you so much already. That's why I always tell people a tithe is a great place to start, but it was never intended to be the end goal for your life as a giver. The end goal is you not determining how much you want to give, but rather deciding how much you're actually going to keep. And the truth I've come to discover about God is this. He actually wants to bless you. I don't care what the religious people and skeptics say. I've never met a broke tither or a broke giver. I've never not seen God do what he said he would do when we give. So maybe you're great at spending time with Jesus, and maybe you love using your talents and abilities to serve him and to do work as unto him. But perhaps this is an area where you've never allowed Jesus to be the Lord of your heart because you're scared. But can I encourage you today? If you honor God with your wealth and resources, he will honor you with his Ultimately, it's all his anyways, but he says that he'll open up the windows of heaven over your life and he'll rebuke the devourer for your sake. What does that mean? The devourer could be debt. It could be people that want to steal from you. It could be lack. It could be a poverty mindset. It could be a lot of things, but God will provide for you. And I know this. He always comes through on his word. Amen. Amen. So we worship Jesus with our time, our talent, and our treasure. And in this way, we honor God with our affection and our devotion. Not because we have to, but because we want to. Because he alone is most worthy of our praise. Lastly, today, there can be no discussion about worshiping Jesus without answering this question first. Have you given Jesus your heart? In other words, have you asked him to come and be the Lord and the Savior of it? If not, we believe today is the day of salvation. Romans 10.9 says this, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Giving your heart to Jesus means believing that he is who he says he is and that he did what the Bible says he did. It means acknowledging his death and his resurrection as the center point for what you believe about God. Paul said to his church in Corinth, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, this sounds simplistic in a way, but it's actually the most profound truth that will utterly change and transform your heart. That is, if you believe it. As it turns out, we give our hearts to Jesus in and through the power of belief, which is why what you believe about yourself and God is the most important thing about you. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, it will change the way you worship and live your life. And if you don't, that decision will also shape the way you worship and live your life. If you've been watching or listening to this message today and you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life, it starts with your belief and your open confession of faith. And it can be as simple as you praying this simple prayer with me right now. And it goes like this, Jesus, Savior, save me. Save me from myself. Save me from all the things that have kept me bound and enslaved. I believe and confess that you are the Son of God, the Messiah. I believe that you died on that cross for me and that God raised you to life again. Jesus, I ask that you would give me a new life of freedom and hope in you. Make me your favorite dwelling place. Come fill me with your Holy Spirit and make all things new. 
you just prayed that with us today, we want to know about your decision. For those that said yes to Jesus for the very first time, we want to say welcome to the family of God, and we'd love to help you get connected either here at Courageous Church or wherever you're watching from. Or perhaps you're recommitting your life to Christ today, and that's awesome as well, and we'd love to celebrate with you. Here's how you can do that. You can go to CourageousChurch.com to fill out a digital connect card, and this will help our team know how to best follow up with you and pray for you in the days ahead, and you're going to need it. We also want to come alongside you as you begin your new faith journey. We want to send you a Bible and help you take what we like to call some next steps. Speaking of next steps, as a new church, we just moved into a brand new building, and we're really excited about it. For those of you in the Salt Lake Valley, we're currently gathering in person at 10702 South, 300 West in South Jordan, our new location on Sundays at 5 p.m., and we'd love for you to join us. We also have prayer nights on Tuesdays at 7 at our prayer room in Sandy, and you can go to our website, CourageousChurch.com slash prayer to get all of those details as well. Lastly, if Courageous Church is your home church, we want to remind you to honor and worship God with your giving, your generosity. It allows us to reach many with the hope, healing, courage, and life of God, and it allows us to advance God's good mission and story for the people of Salt Lake City, the Mountain West, and beyond. If you want to be a part of that, you want to be part of what God's doing to make a huge difference in the lives of people, you can use one of the links we posted right there in the comment section, or just head on over to CourageousChurch.com slash giving to give online. Church, we love you. You are God's masterpiece. Let's be a people that courageously worship Jesus. Amen. Be strong and courageous. We'll see you soon. Thank you for listening today. If you were blessed and you want to be a part of what God is doing through Courageous Church, including ways that you can give, visit us online at CourageousChurch.com.